0: In the retail market right now, there are winners and losers. What side you're on is dependent on how you react to these challenges. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail, the podcast of The Retail Doctor. I'm your host, Bob Vibbs. Have you ever wondered about all the bad news about retail? Is there really anything that small and large retailers can do about the supposed retail apocalypse? Well, we're going to find out on today's episode with Neil Saunders. Welcome Managing Director and Retail Analyst at Global Data, Neil Saunders.
1: Thank you, Bob. Glad to be here.
0: Thank you. Well, who are you and what do you have to do with retail?
1: Well, in my current role, I'm Managing Director and Retail Analyst at Global Data. And what I really do in that role is advise our clients, which are retailers, CPG firms and others, on the retail landscape. What's going on, what's happening with customers, helping them with their business strategy. So it's great because you get, get to have a very broad view of the industry and trends, rather like you do yourself. And you touch on a lot of different clients and, and different situations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and so why retail? I hear that accent. I think I saw you're from Surrey, England, or you you started in Surrey, or...?
1: Oh, well, I, I started really my career in, in London, in, in the UK, um, and I worked in retail in the UK. I worked for the John Lewis Partnership. It was my first job after I left uh, university. And that's really in a way what sparked my interest in the sector. I loved working for a retailer, but I found that I actually quite liked the analytical side, looking at the data looking at the dynamics and trends, and then trying to fashion those into to business strategy. So after John Lewis, I left and joined a, a retail consultancy called Verdict, which was a very UK focused retail consultancy. And, um, over time, I developed my role there into much more of a, a consulting type position. Uh, and then I, I decided eventually, after a while, that I'd like to move to the, the U.S. because it was a different market, different trends, different dynamics, some similarities. Um, I just wanted to have a, a change. So I ended up uh, here in the U.S.
0: And well, I And so go back to that time when you're with John Lewis. How do you think retail has changed since then or how it's stayed the same? Since you're the analytics guy, obviously, you have um, looked at so many different retailers. And John Lewis is a strong brand, right? I mean, they've, they've, they're one of the UK's best.
1: Yeah, they're, they're a very good brand. And I think one of the reasons they're a good brand is because they've constantly moved forward. And I think that is one of the things that's changed since when I started. Uh, when I started there was a lot of um, shifting going on in retail but it was comparatively slow you could almost take your time to digest and understand before reacting I think nowadays everything moves with great speed there's immediacy in retail you need to look understand digest trends very quickly and then act on them very quickly because customers have become more demanding I think the landscape is much faster there are more competitors everyone's Much nimbler than they used to be, and you just need to move at at great pace, but with also great accuracy, and the two things are very difficult to balance. So
0: that's funny you say that, because I think there's this fear of missing out. Oh, we need beacons. Oh, wait a minute, we need to be on Foursquare. Oh, wait a minute, it's all about Facebook. Oh, wait a minute, we got to have a WhatsApp. And our discussion today, I think, would be great to frame it in the terms of there are winners and losers, Um, and While I appreciate a lot of winners are throwing a lot at the wall, I think when I look at a target who has taken a lot of initiatives, but it seems like they are more strategic than some of the losers. Would you agree with that?
1: yeah absolutely I would I, I think you, you, you've hit the nail on the head I think that there are so many distractions in, in retail I and mean, it's very easy to chase after the latest fad it's very easy to say oh this is the next big thing let's let's go and invest in this but I think really what good retailers do and what differentiates those winners from the losers is the good ones always tie whatever they're doing back to their reason for existing so they look at their core proposition they look at who the customer. They look at the landscape and the competitors and they say, okay, what does this mean for us? And I think that leads them to really focus investment like Target has done, as as you you note. And I think that it also enables them to say no to things. So they can say, actually, you know what? Beacons are not for us. It doesn't do much for us. There's, There's very little point in it for our customer base. Or they can comparatively say, as Target did, actually, you know what? Stores are vital. And I remember, and you'll remember as well, when Target first announced it was refurbishing stores, Wall Street was very shocked by this. They were, you know, what are they doing? Investing money in stores? This is the this is the channel of the past. And of course, Target knew that that wasn't the case, but they had the confidence to do it because they understood the customers and the landscape, and they therefore made the proper investments. And as we know now, it's it's paying dividends.
0: Huge dividends, just like Walmart with their two hundred training centers and a lot of things they're looking at to shake off the you're the retailer of last resort that people will work with you know the thing that i'm noticing and you know we are so frequently quoted together in different publications i <laughs> yes. i feel like i'm talking to this uh, spiritual brother from another uh, uh mother type of thing because <laughs> we do see the world as you know There, i think they i think retail is suddenly becoming this place that a whole new group of people are saying KPIs don't matter. It doesn't matter if we open a store and no one comes. It's about you know, presenting this experience. And I think you and I both come back to, well, but does it sell? Does it Does it really add an ROI? Does it really move the needle? Because we can certainly come up with many pretty stores and pretty stories, but it comes down to execution. I think we share that, correct? <laughs>
1: I would agree, yeah. I mean, I think it, it comes back to really understanding the, what the role of retail is. And I think retail is a difficult business to get right. But I think conceptually, it's not very complicated. You need to sell things and you, you put things out, you lay out your stall and you hope that people will come and buy those products from you. And you have to make sure you obviously sell them at a profit. And that, I think you're right. I think what a lot of people sometimes do is, is they forget that is the the whole reason for being a retailer and they get very excited about oh we're doing this uh, you know uh, collection pop-up only type store or a pop-up store and you look at it and you think oh it's interesting and it's good but then you say to them well did you make money from it or did it drive something else in your business and they sort of look at you a bit clueless as if you know that wasn't really the, the point of the exercise but of course that is the point of a a retail business. And you you sort of need to remember that. And I think that gets lost sometimes when we talk about all these technologies and other fancy things.
0: Otherwise, the emperor has no no clothes and you're just calling it out and saying, well, but, you know, is this a distraction? I think, again, I think we come back to that with winners and losers that, uh, to me, I think an awful lot of losers have lost this human connection. You know, I, I always say that people people buy more when they feel they matter and you show that in a number of ways. But to me, it's being more human in an increasingly technological world. I think there's another uh, segment that says it doesn't matter. Technology is going to solve everything. The more we make a store like a website and the more people can get in and get out um, the better. And so we're just going to discount the the merchandise and hope something happens. And I think, um, again, I go back to Walmart, you know, everybody scratched their heads two years ago. Why is Walmart opening training centers? But, but really what they did was they said, we got to, ch- we got to change this culture. And is that something you're seeing with your clients that that's where they're going? Or are they, or are they discounting that and moving more to technology? What would you say?
1: Well, I think it varies very much. I think that the good ones are definitely changing the culture. I think the good retailers recognize the importance of humans in the whole process and they're looking at automation, but they're often looking at automation, I suppose, in areas that are... You know, very little added value, Mm. a bit like Walmart, you know, cleaning floor robots. I mean, cleaning the floor is important, but it's a job a robot can do. But Walmart is interesting because I think the focus is always about taking out the mundane tasks so that it frees up more time for staff to do the added value things. And I think that's what the good retailers are focusing on. I think the bad retailers are the ones that really think that automation is the key to everything, they can strip out as many labor costs as possible and they forget that humans play a very important part in, in that interaction um, because I think that y- As you noted, when customers go into the store, they want to be recognized, they want to be seen. And even very simple interactions with staff are a part of what makes physical retailing attractive. You do go into the store to buy something or to browse, obviously, but the little interactions that you have along the way can make your day better. And that sounds kind of corny, but actually, it is a very important thing. And I think that good retailers understand that and they put in the training and the empowerment for staff so that that can be delivered and that does make all the difference why would you keep going back to a store where you're not seen and recognized and you're not made to feel good there's not much point in it
0: to me that's the hardest thing is how do i create it and deliver a branded shopping experience it's i think it's very difficult and to your point yes you can use ai and learn a lot about Um, customers and you know I think we're a far cry as I talked to a Disney exec um, a few years ago and they said you know when you walk into our store we absolutely can know that your daughter is there we can know her name you're at Disney World we haven't solved the creep factor yes he said I just don't see how we're going to do that in the foreseeable future yes Um, you know that promise that yes we do know all of that and I don't know if you saw hacked on Netflix it's the new I did oh my gosh, we created 5,000 data points and now we can predict everything. And, you know, that's pretty scary. But I just wonder, um, where is that tipping point of what personal service and creepy is? Because it really isn't personal. Personal is if I know you, Neil, I saw you by the golf clubs. We talked about it. You came back in. We have a conversation versus an email I get from you. Um, So where can personalization and AI take us, do you think, in retail without being that creep factor?
1: Well, I think it, it's it's helpful. Um, but you're absolutely right. It has to be used in an appropriate way because, you know, there are certain things that you don't mind retailers knowing about you, especially if you've told them in a survey or you've bought something previously. It's kind of obvious the retailer is going to know that. I think when you start putting other data points on it and you start using algorithms to make assumptions and you start developing personality types i think that one of two things happen either you get it completely wrong (laughs) you alienate your customer which still often happens or you actually get it completely right and then you creep out your customer because the customers like, how do they know that about me how how have they figured this this one out and i think that 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 then becomes quite dangerous because you can damage the relationship as well so there is a very fine balance but you know when it comes to things like being in store there's nothing wrong with talking to people and finding things out that way. Oh, you know, even even a simple, you know, what are you looking for? Mm. And then launching into a conversation to learn things about people. I think that 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 is the way in stores that you you develop that good customer service. I think with the data, you you use the data, I think, to help people. Um, I think that's where it's more appropriate. So, for example, if you had bought... A particular, I don't know, a sink in, in Home Depot previously, and you bought it online, and then you go into store because you want a, a faucet, and you say to them, You know, I, I need a faucet for my, my sink, and which ones fit. I think the, the store staff then being able to look up what you've bought and say, Oh, yeah, you know, you've got this sink, these Excellent. are the options you have. That's where it's really useful because it's appropriate, it's sensible, it's adding value. Um, I think that's where the, the, the kind of balance is right rather than using it in a creepy way to say, Oh, you know, you're this type of person, you should buy this, that, or the other. Uh, that I think is less appropriate.
0: We'll explore more in just a bit, but first, a quick word about Field Agent, our sponsor this season. Field Agent is an on demand platform that furnishes businesses with in store information, shopper insights, and services to drive product sales, all through the Field Agent mobile app, featuring a panel of over one and a half million shoppers. In a matter of hours you can get photos and data from stores everywhere. If you need in store visibility and you need it fast, Field Agent is the solution for you. Visit www.fieldagent.net slash retail doctor for exclusive content. Now let's get back to it. What do you think some of the challenges are with um, retail between winners and losers? And if you're to if you were to just knock out three off the top of your head.
1: I think the I think the biggest challenge is differentiation. I think there's so much choice in the market now. There are so many retailers all doing different things, some of them good, some of them not so good. The question that every retailer should be asking is, how do you stand out? How is what you are providing is is different? And I think when you look at the, the failures and the retailers that are not doing well, Sears obviously being one, JCPenney falling into that category, they don't have an answer to that. There's nothing that feels special or unique about them. And it's very easy for customers to overlook them and say, you know what? I'm not going to visit that store or that website. So I think differentiation is is absolutely key. I think one of the things we we touched on previously is is managing investment. I think there are so many demands on capital investment these days that you have to say, right, we're going to do three things and we're going to do them really well and invest in them, not have this scattergun approach of chasing one thing, then moving to the next, switching to the next, and actually never really doing anything properly. I think that's a, a, a very big challenge. And I'd say the third thing is actually... Just keeping up with and understanding customers, as I mentioned, everything moves so fast and you really need to stay on top of things. And one of the things that I would mention in relation to that is using staff, your staff on the shop floor, your colleagues, your associates, they are your eyes and ears, and it's all very good gathering all these data points and they're really useful. But sometimes managers just going into stores, senior executives going into stores, talking to these people, what are you finding? What are the changes? What are the problem areas? That is one of the things I think that sometimes in this world of big data gets lost. It's just going back to basics, going think, to the shop floor and understanding
0: that. That's a great point. I know, um, you know, the infamous Ron Johnson, uh, debacle at Penny's was we'll get rid of everybody who's been with the brand for a while. and We'll start fresh. Well, uh, you know, most people would have given their right teeth to know that like you've been here 20 years, you've seen things come and go. Um, uh, to your point, um, if I have a good experience with my, Um, employees, like a Lululemon or a container store, or there are several, then they probably will bubble up these ideas and be willing. What I tend to see, uh, I was at a, uh, I wouldn't say a big box, but one step down, kind of a boutique-y brand, and uh, the people came in, and they all had their clipboards, and it was all about, oh, this, these three towels should all be arranged this way, and uh, you need to ship these out, and there was no question about what's selling or what are you hearing or, you know, no valuing your own employees. And I just always think, well, yes, that's a miss, but I also think, so then, aren't you really showing what you think of these people? You're really just one step up from a robot. And if that's the case, why would I go out of my way to go to your store when 80% of the merchandise you carry, yeah, it might have a private label on it, but it's still a, let's say a white uh, dish towel. It's, it's still the same as I could get most anywhere else. We're not going to go out of our way for that anymore, right? That's what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. I think you you really need to to look at what you're delivering, and make sure that it is interesting and that it is very appropriate for for customers. Um, and I think you know there's there's something of a lost art in that. I think some of the you know, the old school merchants in retail, they, they had very good flair and understanding for, for what the customer wanted and they were able to innovate because they always tied back the innovations to, to demand, whether it by be buying a new product, doing something differently in store. And I think, you know, and we, we both consult, but I think there's a very big difference between what I call practical consulting, which I think is the type of consulting we do, That's what we do. in retail. We we so we come from the shop floor, we come from the background of retail, and what I call accountancy type consulting, which I'm I'm very much against, which is where people come in with the clipboards and they say make these cuts. And I, I remember, I mean, you'll you'll remember it too it, a little while ago the fascinating story of of Market Basket, the New England grocery chain, where... You know, it had always been run along the lines of having slightly lower margins because they delivered great prices. That was a proposition and the promise to customers. Very loyal staff because the CEO, um, Arthur de mullers would go into the store, talk to everyone, mm-hmm. every store launch he was there. And then there was a sort of, you know, corporate shenanigans and other people became in charge and they got management consultants in. And of course, the first thing they said is raise your prices because your margins are too low. And of course, they did that and customers just deserted the store in droves because they didn't understand fundamentally why the customers shop there the differentiation in the market how it worked and arthur de Mules came back and, and turned it around and he said in an interview you know one of the things that they never got was you know we charge lower prices and we pay higher salaries and give more benefits because the two things actually work hand in hand yes we get lower margins and lower profits from the product but because we treat the staff very well they're actually so much more productive. They don't leave, so they don't need training. They invest their own time in the stores. And because we're more productive, that's how the business model works. And of course the consultants didn't get that because they didn't understand the business. And I think that's a really interesting case study in someone who is a merchant and a proper retailer and has a proper understanding of the whole facets of the business and other people that just come in and look at the, the spreadsheets and the numbers. And you can't run a, a retail business by just looking at the numbers. It, it doesn't work.
0: Oh, totally agree with that. I think of Trader Joe's also here in the States that has a loyal following. And, and it's interesting. They're both in grocery. At yes. Costco too. Costco has a certainly a, a, a higher threshold for that. And I think that that challenge of, um, you know, execution, it is about being brilliant on the basics and, um, you know, which also brings me, you know, with free flowing conversation we're having today with the role of VCs and so many retailers going out, you know, was it really that Toys R Us was so bad off or was it because they were ladled with debt? Is it because JC Penney is so bad off or ladled with that? Um, you know, I tend to think that once you go to the VC route, you probably are already dead. You didn't figure out your customer and you figured, well, we'll just get some money in, or maybe they took you over in a, in a, Uh, hostile takeover, but um, you probably don't have the steering room to make a difference. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, I I would. I'd completely agree with that. I think VCs, as you say, sometimes they have a role. They take on businesses that otherwise wouldn't wouldn't survive. But I think there is a real point to be made that where a VC treats a business as an ATM machine just to get money out of and, and ladens it up with debt, that retailer has very little chance of survival. And you see these highly... Leverage very debt-ridden like, uh, traders like, Traders um, like, Toys R Us or even J Crew now, which has a colossal yeah, amount. I mean, how they've got that much debt is, it's completely ba- well, It's not baffling. you know how it's been done, but it, it is an enormous. It's an Neiman Marcus. Marcus of debt. Or Neiman tell Marcus. Tell me,
0: how do we get there? I mean, exactly. These numbers you, are staggering. Get just a million dollars in debt? Could I do that? Like, just like what <laughs> yeah. the hell? And I'll still yeah. be in business, and I'll tell everything's fine. But I want to be like five million in debt.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, if you, if you use it, I mean, if you take on debt and you're using it to invest and to grow the business, I think that's fine. But when you're just taking basically money out, I think you leave a, a retailer with, with no room for maneuver at all. And I, I always, I mean, going back to my first, job at john lewis john lewis is a partnership so basically it's a workers cooperative um it's very commercially focused it says profit is part of the objective but one of the things that i always take away from that is that john lewis would rather make a little bit less money by investing and doing things properly and for the longer term than take the short term gain of increasing profitability whether it be by taking on lots of debt to give to give out in bonuses or whether it be by you know cutting something here or there and i think that that's an absolutely key focus for retailers today they they have to be long term focused you cannot be about the short term gains and it's a it's a real problem for some
0: yes, and if you I look at
1: look at Amazon. I mean, Amazon is very long-term focused. Amazon is on the next 20 years down the line and it's investing and it doesn't mind not making so much of a profit. And it it shows in the results.
0: But they also haven't figured out brick and mortar. So uh, interesting. I was reading how they've actually lost. uh, Whole Foods is losing market share in many markets. And even though they theoretically lowered the price, um, it's not special to your point. How are you differentiating? Now you're part of Amazon and now they're changing the private level to show Amazon uh, as well. And what does that feel like then when you're shopping with them? It's a, it's a multifaceted discussion and I, I probably could continue. Um, I do have to though, with, with your background, I do have to ask, so where are we going with Brexit? You know, what's, what's retail going to look like in London? Are, this uncertainty has been over them for two years so I just well, wonder how do you plan and and where do they go either way with the October Halloween deadline? Maybe maybe not movable. Who knows?
1: Well, I think I think this you you put the your, your finger on it with the word that you mentioned. It's uncertainty. I think no one really still knows exactly what's going to happen. We have a bit more certainty, sure, that we're supposedly leaving on on the thirty first of October, but. I think that it, it's, it's still up in the air to a certain extent. And I think it makes it very difficult for, for retailers and others to prepare because you don't want to make massive investments for right. something that's perhaps not going to come off. And of course, the other problem is that, you know, with the dis- potential disruption to supply chains, it comes at the worst possible time because everyone's gearing up for the holidays. The warehouses are absolutely crammed full of Christmas inventory. So there's very little slack in the system. So you know, from the retailers' point of view, it it really is very, very challenging to to plan. From the consumer's point of view, I think that the uncertainty is what makes people hesitant about spending. And that of course is not great in in the run-up to the holidays. So In some ways, we need to have a a very firm conclusion on it one way or the other so that retailers basically can just get on with the business of of retailing rather than being distracted by everything else that's going on around them.
0: And I think it would be the same thing uh, in the States with tariffs. Everyone is like, oh, "Oh, well, they're going to be kicked down the hole. You know, it's not going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Clearly, something's going to happen. And uh, to your point, again, it couldn't happen at the worst time
1: yeah exactly i think and you know we, we've talked a lot in, in this discussion about all of the issues with retailing they're internal to retailing the, the digital things the investment all of those things the last thing you want arguably as, as a trader is to have these external factors like tariff or brexit on top of it but unfortunately they're there and they have to be dealt with
0: <laughs> well that's exactly it well uh, i want to ask you uh, two more questions and then we'll be done so Um, what would you tell a friend? They take you out to a local coffee house. They say, Neil, I want to open my own brick and mortar retail store. What would you tell them?
1: I would say, first of all, you know, what are you doing um, that is different and why are you passionate about it? And I think if you can answer those two questions, you have a good case for, for opening a business and then you need to work backward to find out how you make that business work financially. It's a, a bit like Simon Sinek says, start with the why. Right. Start with why you're doing something, why you're different. I think a lot of people say, I'd like to get into retail, I'd like to open a coffee shop, I'd like to open a store. And I think that's, that's very noble and it's a great ambition, but you can't start with that. You have to start with that intersection of, what are you bringing to the market that's unique and is needed? And why does it make you passionate while you get up in the morning and work really hard on this? And if you start with those questions and then work back as to how you're going to make the business work, I think it has a much better chance of success than just saying, hey, I'd like to open a store because it's kind of a cool thing. And I feel like it's something I'd enjoy.
0: No, that's exactly it. And and let's face it, um, you know, people say they want to open a bar or a bre- bed and breakfast. I'm always like, so you <laughs> want to be at a bar at 2am every morning? Oh, no, I'll just <laughs> hire someone. Oh, really? Or you want to hire a, a bed and breakfast? Oh, it'll be cool. You know, they'll be in our house. It'll be easy. It's like, Have you ever thought of having people in your house 24 hours a day? Well, not really. And then you say, so if you did that, what are the systems that have to be in place for you to make money? Because anyone can open a store, right? This field of dreams that, you know, to your point, you have a unique need for it. Nobody needs anything you're going to open a new store for. I don't care. It's branded with a little cat with a dog toy. It doesn't matter. It's ultimately, (laughs) do you have enough passion to see it through? Because a lot of digital brands Uh, thought the way forward was going to be just digital. That's where all the money was. And now they're opening brick and mortar stores like, well, I guess that's kind of limited. I think that's certainly uh, a great way to think of it. I like that idea with the passion and really thinking about that. And um, so two things, tell me something good about retail.
1: I think that it is one of the most interesting sectors in uh, in industry um, because I, I think that, it moves with great speed. Everything is visible. You can see customers. You can talk to customers. It's tangible. You can touch it. And I think you can enact change and you can see the results of that change very quickly. So, you know, if you change your product, your store, the way you do business online, I think you can see the reaction to that. So I think it's a, a wonderful arena in which to experiment and to innovate just because it is so accessible and it, it's all around us. And I think that makes it really, really exciting in a way that, personally, I don't find a lot of other industries like healthcare or uh, you know, chemical production or things like that. They're great industries, but they don't have that same immediacy and, and sort of tangibility.
0: That's a great point because your whole uh, operation can change with the next person walking in the door. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's kind, kind of amazing. And how can they find out about more about you and Global Data other than releasing you in like every magazine and newspaper in the country? Because they always come to you for your analytical chops, which are, yes, you, which are you're, great. You're,
1: Usually alongside you as well, as you, as you mentioned. Um, I think um, if you if you want to know more about me, then I'm on Twitter. My handle is Neil Retail, all one word. And you can also go to globaldata.com if you want to find more about global data.
0: Excellent. Well, you've been a gentleman joining me here today, and I really appreciate it. And I commend everybody to uh, listen to this man, because not only has he come from brick and mortar, But he has the chops to see what's going on. And you know what? It still comes down to the same thing we both agree on. It's about being brilliant on the basics. Again, thanks so much for joining me, Neil.
1: You're welcome. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Bob.
0: Thank you. Well, that pretty much does it, and I want to thank my guest, Neil Saunders, and tell you that one of the things that I really took from this was his idea that there are so many distractions in retail, and it's easy to chase after the latest fad, and that ultimately, you have to look at who your customers are and the landscape of your competitors and just say, okay, what does this technology or initiative mean for us? On the next episode of Tell Me Something Good About Retail, I'll speak with father and son Jordan and Neil Edwards about how they've started multiple brick-and-mortar businesses and their tips for success. You won't want to miss it. I'm Bob Fibbs, the Retail Doctor. Thanks for listening.
1: Tell Me Something Good About Retail is the podcast of The Retail Doctor. Visit RetailDoc.com to learn what makes Bob Fibbs the authority on brick-and-mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest brands all the way down to the smallest mom and pops. As a listener of the Tell Me Something Good About Retail podcast, you can receive free information and guides when you visit retaildoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. For more information to access the complete archives of past retail goodness and to see about Bob speaking to your audience, please visit retaildoc.com.